Father, we give you thanks today for our ability to gather and for our ability to be here together. We recognize, Lord Jesus, as we come into this time of year, as we get ready to celebrate, as we get ready for Thanksgiving, we get ready to then move into Christmas. We realize that this time of year is a time of year which is wrought with need. For so many people, there are needs in their lives. For so many people, there are things that they're struggling with. And this time of year, though for many of us, it's a joyous time. For others, it brings a time of concern. It brings a time of worry. It brings a lot of things to the surface. And so, Lord Jesus, we just pause even as we step into this Thanksgiving week. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be minister to families. And as we have our gift cards, as we've been doing that, as we've been giving boxes for Operation Christmas Child, I pray that you would enable us through those means in some small, tangible ways to make a statement for the kingdom of God into people's lives, that they would see the hands and the feet of Jesus at work. As we come to our time today and looking to your word, Lord Jesus, I give you thanks for this ability to gather together. I know that we're not all here in person, many of us still watching online, a concern for sickness and being careful for wherever the a person might be at this morning, in person here, North Avenue campus, watching at home, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be felt and that your ministry would be taking place in our hearts and lives. We give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to continue on in our series of I Have a Question, and today we're going to wrap up that series as we've been together in this past fall, walking through this idea of how we can minister to perhaps to people who are not believers, and specifically has been geared towards people who are not believers, to challenge thinking. And along the way, we have immediately said that we, had, we want to change the conversation. Now, let me just say real quickly this. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been preaching. Uh, I was here to introduce Kelly. Kelvin Walker, who did a great job, and of course, last week with baptism, which is an incredible service. But I miss not being able to preach, and I love being able to open God's Word together and to get into it and see what God's Word has to say to us. And so I've been antsy all week um, because I get to get back into God's Word with us, and so looking forward to that. And today we're going to wrap up this series, and we've been trying to redirect the questioning. We've been trying to redirect the thought process that takes us down a different path, and so for so many times, the question is, well, how about this? How does God allow this? And how does this happen in the world? And we, we learned along the way, if we're honest about that, that none of us arrive at a place of following Jesus because we have checked off all the boxes and got all our issues settled. It's usually not how it goes. Now, maybe rarely it happens, but we have, what we have found is that typically what takes place, something personal happens. Something happens along the way where instead of Christianity or following Jesus be a list of issues to be addressed, something personal happens and we can't get away from or deny the fact that maybe there really is a God and we have to somehow deal with that. And so what we've learned along the way is that no one typically just checks off the boxes. I mean, think about it. In most of our conversations with people that would say, well, I'd never be a follower of Jesus. I don't even believe in God because of this, 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 and this. You have seen it yourself that when you begin to enter in a conversation that be, we're going to say, well, I'm going to answer this question, this question, this question for you. It doesn't take long for you to realize that probably isn't going anywhere. That at the end of the day, we're probably not going to arrive at some place where somebody goes, oh, that's why there's suffering in the world. Sure, I'll follow Jesus now. No, something happens where we have this personal interaction where the questions don't go away and they're not minimized from the place of importance, but all of a sudden they're not quite as gripping that we have to get them answered. 
Now, as we wrap up today, I want to focus on two questions that, that you really need to wrestle with. If you're a person who's never given your life to Jesus Christ, whether here in person, whether watching online, I, I want to say to you there are really two questions. Take all the other questions you might have, set those aside, because there's only two fundamental questions that will actually get you some traction that will actually get you some movement towards understanding who God is and understanding the importance of decision. If you're ever talking to someone about spiritual things, I want to tell you there are two questions that you really want to focus on. If you are inclined to debate someone, they ch throw some challenge out there, and you're declined to say, well, no, I know the Bible says, I would just say to you, back the truck up. And stop and say, you know, maybe there's a different approach and the different approach are these two questions. Two questions. All the other questions we have are good ones, but they will not bring you closer to saying yes to Jesus Christ. Two of them, however, are pivotal. And if you're willing, if any person is willing to honestly wrestle these two questions to the ground, it will move you closer to God. But it will not guarantee that you'll be a follower of Jesus. Because I want you to remember, God never strong arms anyone. God will never take you, twist your arm, and say, you are going to follow me. No. But if you'll wrestle these two questions to the ground, if you'll honestly grab a hold of them and go after them, you'll be at a place where you will actually move closer to God. Whether you ultimately make that decision to follow him or not, that's still going to be your decision. So what are the two questions? Well, the first question is, what happened? What happened? When we're talking about the life of Christ, you have to ask the question, so what happened? Why is that important? Because unlike any other religion, unlike any other belief system, unlike any other philosophy, Christianity is not grounded in a thought process. Christianity is not grounded in a philosophy. Christianity is not grounded in a belief system. Christianity is not a theology. It's not a worldview. Now, immediately someone was, hey, whoa, 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 the Bible. What about the Bible? The Bible means absolutely nothing if the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't take place. See, Christianity is not grounded in the Bible. Christianity is grounded in the fact that Jesus Christ said he was going to die, come back to life, and he did. All of Christianity is based on that truth. If that truth does not take place, if that event does not happen, the Bible is just another book of some wonderful teachings, right? So oftentimes we get kind of mixed up in our thought process because we say, well, the Bible's it. Well, the Bible's critical. The reason I love sharing God's word with you is because it's all about God's word. If it's not about God's word in your life, then you got very little else. But it's all about God's word. However, the foundation of God's word is all based on an event. No other religion anywhere in the world has based its entire system on an event that would have somebody coming back from the dead. So that's why it's important, this first question, what happened? And an event that happened that set Christianity on a historical movement and a movement that has not stopped. So that's what happened resurrection of Jesus Christ took place. So that's a, key, that's a key piece. Because people want to debate the Bible. And you know what? Toss that aside and say, wait a minute. If we don't have a living Christ, why even debate the Bible then? So that's a starting place. What happens? Second question is one that basically trumps all their questions. 
And if you're willing to really honestly wrestle with this question, you will look at the entire world differently. And that question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, there's a lot of other questions that we have in this whole thought process, which are quite fun. You know, um, you know, bottom line is, how do, you make a boat, how do you make a boat big enough, really, that handles every animal um, in the world, two and two? And how do you have the uh, lions living? How do you do that? Yeah, that's kind of fun debate. Another great debate is, hey, is it possible that God's so big he can create two mountains with no valley? Some of you are going, ooh, two mountains, no valley. Is God so big and so powerful he can create a rock he can't lift? I mean, those are really fun debates, right? Those are the kind of questions you can talk about and think about. But the real issue is they don't move you closer to God. They don't move you closer to the question as to, well, is this thing real or not? So those two life-changing questions is, bottom line, who is Jesus and what happened 2,000 years ago? Now, those two questions it make the dialogue of Christianity extremely personal. Extremely personal. Now, today, we're going to look at some of those answers, and we're going to see them in a New Testament story. Uh, a New Testament story that for most church people, they would have certainly heard of, but oftentimes have not read the whole story. Now, it's going to be in, in the book of Acts, and so if you want to get a Bible out, you can. We're going to put every verse on the screen, because I'm going to be jumping a lot of verses, because for, to read the entire story from beginning to end would just take us too long and covers too much time, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty incredible story about someone who had placed their faith in Christ. Now, listen very carefully as we begin. If you've ever said, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you've ever said, I will never... I will never make that decision. I would just say to you, be careful what you say, because you just don't know. But I also want to say something to any person who's ever had a conversation with someone about Jesus, someone you care about, and if you ever found yourself saying sometimes, what difference does it make? And you lose hope. I would say to you, do not lose hope. Because once again, we never know how God's Holy Spirit is working, and we never know the moment where somebody goes, now it's personal, and something changes. So let me give you the background to the story. It begins in Acts chapter 7, but I said I'm going to cover a lot of verses so you can follow along on the screen. Now, here's the background. The story takes place a number of months after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and returned to heaven. Now, after the crucifixion, even though th there was this small group of Jesus' followers who said that they saw him alive, so immediately after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, numbers of people saw him, hundreds of people saw him, and there's a small group of people that are believing in him and quote-unquote following him. And even though that's true, you also need to know that for the majority of the Jewish leaders of the day, they thought it's over. Jesus had this following, they've killed him, their thought process is, well, now that's done. We got him done, he's killed, it's done. Yeah, there's this group talking, but the bottom line is game over. The Romans really didn't care much about Jesus at all. What they cared about is they cared about peace. So if the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders are in an uproar, then they care about what's causing the uproar. So from their perspective as well, Jesus is dead, finished. This thing is done, put to, put to bed, put to rest. 
So the Romans, uh, they were feeling good, Jews were feeling good, Jewish leaders. Everyone's had this thought that says, now we can get back to normal. But instead of back to normal, all, of the, all the Jewish people could talk about was this person named Jesus. Because the people that had seen Jesus alive, the ones that had witnessed it firsthand, these people were all good Jewish people. And they couldn't stop talking about it. And these people who saw him were unwavering in what they saw. Don't forget, it wasn't a teaching they were defending. They were defending what they saw. This is so critical to any statement of faith. They're not defending a thought process. They're not defending a philosophy. They're not saying, well, Jesus said this and wasn't it wonderful? No, what they're saying is we saw him alive. That's critical. And we know he was dead and now we saw him alive. And they were unwavering in that. And it was this type, this, the topic of discussion throughout Jerusalem. And based on that, hundreds and thousands of Jewish people began to believe that Jesus really was their Messiah. And the reason they believed was because of all these different people that had all said the same exact unwavering story. We saw him. And they began to explain what he had said, what he had, what he had prophesied about. They began to connect the dots going back in history, prophetic history. And it all began to make sense to them. So suddenly, there's a groundswell of people who are talking about Jesus and believing in Jesus. Well, this is pretty troubling to the Jewish leaders because here's the other piece of it. Don't forget, there are no churches. You know, there's no churches to go gather in. And understandably, these Jewish people who are placing their faith in Christ as the Messiah, they're seeing this as a Jewish thing. This is not an anti-Jewish thing. This is the fulfillment of everything that they've been waiting for and been, and been teaching. So the natural place for them to go talk about this would be where? At the, at the temple courts, in the synagogues, because this is just a, this is the fulfillment of it. So their audience are all these Jewish people, and they're talking about what they see is just a fulfillment of all this Jewish prophecy. Well, it was very troubling to all the people who had killed him because they thought it was done. They thought they had this thing over, and yet this movement, they can't, they can't stop it. The Romans now become unhappy because what they wanted is they don't want an uprising and the uprising is starting again. So now what we see happens is that with the Jewish leaders leading the way, now both the Jewish leaders and the Romans now engage again in persecution. Not again, but they engage in persecution, I should say. And remember, if you will, they're not called Christians. These are not called Christians. These are just good Jewish people who are following Jesus. Now, as I said before, they didn't have Assis Client shirts, they didn't have North Avenue Watch shirts, they didn't have a Baptist church or a Methodist church. All they had was a synagogue, and so that's what there would be. And because all the people were required to go to the synagogue, required to go to the temple, every day of the week you got an audience to hear the story about Jesus, and it grew and grew. Now, one, of, one person in this background story, one of these most prolific of the Jesus storytellers, because all they were telling is the story. Listen, they're saying, listen, Jesus actually was alive after he was dead, and that fits what the prophecy was, and they start going back, and they're going, man, look at the dots. You can't deny them. He's the Messiah. One of the most prolific of those storytellers, Jesus storytellers. Not a fictional story. One of the most more prolific who understood scripture, understood history, was a guy named Stephen. And not only was Stephen a great storyteller of the story of Jesus, he was absolutely articulate and he was absolutely brilliant. 
In fact, so wise, so, so cunning in his thought process that every time the Jewish leaders would try to verbally take Stephen on, he would make them look like fools, and as a result of that, more and more people would follow Jesus. So Stephen began the target. Uh, they, they basically couldn't shut him down. They couldn't stop him. So they had a plan. The plan was they got some people together, paid them to make a false accusation against Stephen. So they made a false accusation against Stephen, got him arrested, tried him, and found him guilty, guilty of something that was worthy of death. He had a death sentence. Now, we don't know exactly what the charges were, but he was, he was uh, found guilty and then sentenced to death by stoning. Now, friends, you have to understand kind of a key note. Virtually in that day, if they were going to stone someone, they invited everyone to participate. Now, number one, it's easy to do because stones are everywhere. But there's another reason why they would do that, and that would be if everyone participated, they'd make the pronouncement of why the person is guilty, but now no one shares the burden of having killed someone because you're just throwing a rock or a bunch of rocks, and you don't know if yours does it or doesn't do it. And so no one then is guilty of killing the person themselves, but the corporate body comes together and does this. What we do know is that Stephen was killed purely and only because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He's the first martyr. He is the first martyr, someone killed purely for their faith in Christ. Now, all of this background is to set up for what happens next. Now, while the story is taking place, there's an intelligent young man, a shark young, young man, who is in the shadows of Stephen being stoned. The stoning of Stephen's happening over here, and if we get, can get a Hollywood picture of this now, so we got a Hollywood movie maker. The stoning is taking place, but over here in the shadows is this young, intelligent man who's really sharp. He's a Jewish leader. He knows the law well. And in fact, though he's not actually stoning Stephen, he's inciting the crowd, he's encouraging them, and he's building the case as to why it's acceptable. In our movie, we're watching this and we're seeing that as people are going to start throwing rocks, they got to get their coats off. So they take their coats off. Well, where do you put your coat? Well, you lay it down somewhere, but of course you want to lay it down somewhere where it's safe. So you lay it down near someone who is safe, who will safely watch it for you. So the picture we have are all these people grabbing their rocks, taking off their coats and laying their feet down, their coats down next to a guy who is watching over the whole ordeal. So their coats will be safe. On top of that, because the Jewish leaders are a part of all of this and encouraging all of this, on top of that, they're laying their coats down by one of these Jewish leaders because everyone, everyone wants to be accounted for to say, look, I'm a part of this. See, I'm a part of this. We're, we're part of the team that says this is wrong. So they lay their coats down, and now if you get this picture, this, this Hollywood cinematic moment, the lens zooms out, and here's this huge pile of coats. And you see a person's legs, and it spans up, and there's the person. And dimly lit, there's a guy standing there with a smile on his face, and we know his name as Saul. Now, you'll know the name Saul, some of you. Others will recognize, not recognize it because you haven't read the whole story. But Saul, his name is changed later to Paul, the apostle Paul. Here is Saul, and he stands there watching with approval, the Bible says, the stoning of Stephen. But wait a minute. Here he is watching and, and approving the stoning of Stephen. But wait a minute. This is the guy we know as Paul, the apostle. This is the greatest church planter who's ever lived. This is a guy who wrote half of the New Testament. 
Some of you are, some of you are named after him because your family loves the name Paul because of what he represents. But here he is in a whole different life cheering on the stoning of this one of these, the first martyr, Stephen. Verse 2, Acts chapter 7. I mean, Acts chapter 7, verse 57. At this, talking about the religious leaders, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, referring to Stephen. And while the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And jump down to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of their killing him. So what happens is this. So we have the stoning of Stephen, but this is a very pivotal moment if we look in biblical history. See, at this moment from the killing of Stephen, the, the people now recognize that there's a green light, green light for the persecution of these people who are followers of Jesus. And so persecution, history tells us, ramps up. The scripture tells us that now the people know that these quote-unquote followers of Jesus, followers of the way, they can be murdered, they can be tortured, with the religious leaders approving it and with Rome turning a blind eye. So now it's open season on these followers of Jesus and the persecution is intense in Jerusalem because that's where it's centered at. So it's only persecution happening in Jerusalem. So these new followers of Jesus leave Jerusalem. There's a mass exodus, but it tells us this. The only ones that stayed in Jerusalem were the disciples. The disciples stayed. All these other followers of Jesus, they all left Jerusalem and headed for other cities. So, but remember again, they're still not called Christians. They are now called the people of the way because Jesus had said he was the way. So they get that, that label. So the Christians have now fled, they've, they've fled Jerusalem, and that's not stopping Saul. And so here's where it picks up in verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. See, later in Acts, it tells us that Saul was basically uh, actually out hunting them down, these believers, to torture them, to get them to recant. Historical documents beyond Acts tells us that Saul went out searching for them to torture them, and he found joy in it. But please know most of those people died because the purpose of the torture was to get them to recant. It's very, very difficult to recant of something that you saw to be true. See, you, you can recant teaching. You can say, oh, okay, the teaching's crazy anyway. But it's very difficult when you've seen something that even the most weak person has the hardest time saying, I can't tell you that I don't believe what I saw. I can't say to you that I don't believe what I know to be true in me. So you'll find that though they tortured many, they eventually killed most because they weren't willing to recant. And this happened over and over again. So this is the background not only were they put to death, but Saul had joy watching them suffer. Back to our text in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, again through 4. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the, to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any of them there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
Now, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So here's the deal. So the Christians all scatter. He goes to the priest and says, listen, I'm going after them. I want you to give me letters so I can take them to all the synagogues throughout Damascus. And if I find them there, I've got letters that give me the authority to arrest them and bring them back here for torture or for punishment. So he gets a caravan together. They're on their way. They're prop folks, they're probably on their way singing songs and having a great time. Why? Because this is the passion of their life. This is the passion of Saul's life. So he's got his wish, he's got his mission, he's got his journey. So off they go. Now notice this. I think this is kind of interesting. So he, where is he going to find these people? He's going to the synagogues. Why? Because where else would they go? I mean, this is an easy hunt. Because these Christians aren't hiding. They're not in small groups. They're not hiding in homes. They're not going to their churches. They're still thinking that this is a Jewish thing. Every Jew would be on board with this. So where do they go? They go to other towns to go to synagogues and tell their story there. So these poor people are so dumb that they're just set up because Paul goes, I'm just going to the synagogues and gathering because they're all gathered there. But on the way, there's a flash of light that that puts Saul on his face and leaves him speechless in a moment when he hears the words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now stop and think about this for a moment. If Saul hadn't been knocked senseless in that moment, if he had not been knocked to the ground in this moment where all of a sudden something, something happened here that's unexplainable, I'm expecting, given Saul a quick second, if it was just a momentary thing, he would say something like this. What do you mean persecute me? There's no me here. I'm persecuting it. I'm persecuting a thought process. I'm correcting bad theology. I'm persecuting an ideology. I'm correcting false theology. I'm I'm basically punishing a bunch of renegade people who are standing against the truth. Don't forget, Paul, Saul represented the truth. I'm only going against these people who are against the truth, against what God's word says. So there's no me here. It's an it. And then Jesus says, no. I said, why do you persecute me? Ah, personal. See, why do you persecute me? Not it, me. And then Saul asks the most important question that any man or any woman can ask. It's the question I said earlier that we need to ask. And he says this in verse 5. He says, who are you, Lord? Now, don't forget the word Lord is not, does not, is not the word given that he knows who it is. That's the title would be given anybody who speaks from heaven and with such a loud voice you fall on your face. I just got a little side note for you. If you're ever driving down the road, there's a big bolt of light and you're thrown to the car, off the car, onto the ground, and you hear a voice from heaven, start by saying, Lord, whose is this? Okay? Start there. It's just a good place to start. And so that's what, that's what he does. He says, he says, but who are you, Lord? Again, not Lord as in God. He just says, well, who are you? Now, remember, folks, this is the key question. This is the biggest question that if you're willing to wrestle with, it gets you places in this discussion about who God is. The whole verse of verse 9. So, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And then Jesus responds, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I want to plant an idea in your head here for just a moment specifically to those that are here watching uh, or listening in 
who have never, never given your life to Jesus Christ. You're not a believer, follower of Christ. Some of you who have had some bad life experiences that have left you angry at God. I want to talk to some of you who would say, and I know there are people that will go through some pretty bad life experiences and they end up saying, that's it, I'm an atheist. That's it, I reject God because you've had some bad dealings in your life. You've had some bad issues, some things that have taken place. I want to talk to you for a moment. And perhaps others of you that maybe you haven't gone through some difficulties of life, but maybe you just got this internal think process going on that causes you to resist the Bible, causes you to resist anything that Jesus would say. That thing that goes off inside of you when someone says, hey, you should go to church with me. It'll be a cold day in hell before I go to church. You know, that kind of re reaction some of us have. That kind of person, perhaps, and when someone says, hey, you want to do a Bible study with me? I'd rather have you stick a pencil in my eye than go to a Bible study with you. And some of you know exactly who I'm talking about because if you're honest, you either are there or you've had that feeling. That sense where, you know, when they say, hey, I just got this CD for you. I got this blog. Hey, I got this sermon online. I'd love for you to listen, listen to. And you just go, there's no way in the world I would do that. Someone who says, why not? Why don't you just be a Christian? And your answer is, I will never do that. And then you let them have it. Then you let them have it. You unload on them. You leave them a wreck. You ask them questions you know they can't answer. You tell them stories you know that will baffle them, that they can't respond to you. You win the argument. You win the debate. You send your wife off crying because all she was trying to do is tell you about Jesus, and you send her off. And so you've won the battle, and off they go, and there you sit, so happy, so confident, that you won the argument. But here's the question I would say to you. Even after you've won, if you're honest, why are you still so unsettled inside? Even after you've won the argument and you've put them in, your, in their place, and now it's all quiet, there's no one around and you sit there, why are you still so unsettled? Here's the thought I want to plant. Maybe it's because the battle is not between you and ideas. Maybe it's because the battle is not between you and the church. Maybe it's because the battle is not because of you and the, your background. It's not because of you and some horrible things that some other Christians have done. Maybe it's because the battle is between you and Jesus. And it's personal because he's real and you can't write him off. You can write them off for their behavior. You can write them off because you see them as being ignorant. You can write them off because you're superior and you've got questions they can't answer. So you have this feeling of superiority. But when, it sits, when you sit down in the quietness and you've got the reality that maybe this guy is real, maybe the unsettledness is because he's not going away. It's a personal thing. Back to our verse... And so, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul later in, this, in the book of Acts, in verse 26, actually adds a little dimension, which I think is interesting. He's recounting the story of this event, and he adds a little line that we don't have in this first account, and it's in, verse, it's in uh, verse 14, uh, chapter 26, verse 14. So he's telling the story. He says, so we all fell to the ground, and I, had a ver I, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, there's a word we don't hear very often, goads. 
Not one usually in your vocabulary, I expect. And if it is in your vocabulary regularly, please come talk to me. Um, I would just love to hear the world you live in and how you use the word. Let me give you a quick explanation. A goad was at that, at that time, a goad was a, a hefty stick or a steel bar. And it was literally used to pry, to push, to poke stubborn animals. Now, please know, it wasn't meant to beat animals. There was none of that. But the bottom line is, if you got a donkey or you got a cow that decides it's going to sit down and not move, it's sitting down, it's not moving. I laugh. We've got a guy in our neighborhood. People walk their dogs and all the time. And we've got our little dogs, and, and uh, we've trained her not to cross the curb. So we don't have to leash her, typically. We walk out. She'll run right to the curb and stop. We taught her that as a puppy. She's just never crossed the curb. Squirrels, she'll bolt after a squirrel and just about break her neck stopping at the curb. But she stops. And, of course, other people are nervous. And, and we keep, and they've gotten, the neighborhood's gotten to know her, so they kind of laugh. We have one guy who walks his dog. And I got to tell you, I can't, I, I, it just, it just makes me smile. They walk the dog probably four, five, six times a day, which I think to myself, who has time for that? I mean, I want to walk the dog half a dozen times a day, no matter the weather, they walk the dog. But if the dog sits, and, and it will just sit, when the dog sits, they stop. And I've seen that dog sit for 20 minutes. And they just stop. They're walking along and the dog will look and just stop and sit. <laughs> I'm out doing my chores. I'm out doing the garbage. I'm cutting the grass. I come around the corner 15 minutes later. The guy's still standing there. And everything inside of me says, just pick up the dog and go. But it's like, no, the dog's not ready to move yet. What do you mean the dog is not ready to move yet? Who's in control here? And that dog will take 10 more steps aside to sit again. Now, please know this dog is not an old dog. You know, I can give you, I can give you, it's like me, a couple of steps. I got to sit down and rest for a while, you know, I need someone to rub my feet, give me something to drink. I got that. This is a young dog. And so you have animals that don't, and if it's a cow, if it's a calf, if it's a donkey, and it decides it's not going, they understood the concept that said, I don't have time. So they got the goat out, and the goat underneath popped this thing up, and pretty soon the cow knows the goat wins. The donkey gets the steel rod wins. And so that's the picture here. So here's the picture that we have. The picture is this. It's futile to resist the goad because the goad is going to win. We have Jesus speaking to Saul saying this in this moment. Listen, it's pointless for you to resist me. You can hunt my people down. You can torture them and you can kill them. You can imprison them, but I'm going to win. And you can't stop me. And you can't stop the goad. You can't stop me pressing you on. Not to twist your arm, but life's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to win. Back to our text, verse 6. So after this, he's blind. So now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard, the, they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, I want you to go to the house of Judas on Street Street. I just love the fact that puts it on Straight Street. 
you know, I want you to go to 3rd and Main, turn right. He said, so I want you to go to Jews out on Straight Street and ask for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all of the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief of priests to arrest all who call on your name. I love the transparency of Scripture. Doesn't hide anything. God's speaking to Ananias in a dream, in a vision. He says, hey, I want you to go. I want you to pray for this guy. You're going to get his sight back. And Ananias goes, I want to go pray for that guy. I want to go pray for that guy. Well, so yeah, you're going to go pray for him because he's praying. I don't care if he's praying. We know him. We know what he's come to do. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And I like that. I like the fact that there's an honest dialogue where he goes, I, I don't know if I can trust this, God. Well, he's, God says, well, you can trust me. So back to our story. And he has come here with authority from the chief of priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, most people would say, most people would say, you know, hold on, Saul, you're going a little fast here. Take a little time. Why don't you just wait? Hold this out. Um, but it says he gets up, he can see, he gets baptized, and he begins to jump into the story. And a lot of us would say, you know, just, just take a little breath here. Verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all of those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah and after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy now among the Jews to kill him. What a story. Friends, let me ask you a question. When Saul walks out of the high priest's office with letters to go to the synagogues of Damascus and arrest anyone who claims to be a follower of the way. And if we would have paused right then and said, seeing the blood of Stephen on the ground and seeing the list of people tortured by Saul and the great joy he took in that, and if we would have stopped right then and said, quick, quick survey, how many people think this guy will be the most prolific Bible writer in history, half the New Testament, and the greatest church planner proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? Not one single person would raise their hands. So who is it in your mind that you've thought, no way, don't you give up hope? Because we don't know when this Christianity as a thing becomes a me moment and there's a personal connection. And so Saul goes to the synagogues. Well, he goes there and there's no Christians there because they all heard he was coming. 
You know, the ones that had gone there, they all fled again because they heard he was coming. So there's no one left there but these good old Orthodox Jews. So he starts preaching to them. And so they now plot to kill him. Now remember, the only Christians left back in Jerusalem were the disciples. That's a key part of the story. Everyone left but the disciples. Everyone else is split. So Paul preaches for a while. They're now going to kill him. And so he says to himself, the, the, the other Christians, get him out. They actually sneak him out of town. And his thought is, hey, I got a great idea. I'll go back to Jerusalem and I'll hang out with the disciples seeing that I'm one of them now. That's his thought process. Verse 26, and when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Again, I love the transparency of Scripture. Now, these guys, these are the, these are the, the heartbeat guys of the, of the Christian story. These are the disciples, and they all look at him and go, better not. Here's what they probably said in our, in our Christian language today. I think we need to give him time and let's see if it's real or not. As opposed to let's embrace him and bring him into the community of followers and let's build him up along the way. There's a the, there's the story. Friends, sometimes you're not going to get it right. They didn't get it right. Sometimes you're not going to get it right. Sometimes your belief will be weak. Sometimes your faith is going to be all over the place. Sometimes your faith will be so small that later you're going to go, man, God, how can I not believe you? But I want to suggest to you that, that, that that's okay because that's the nature of our walk at times. Sometimes we soar up here with faith and sometimes we just can't believe it to be true, right? But just don't live down here. It's okay in your spiritual journey if you have these low points, but don't live there. Don't be content to stay there. Have a moment where you go, God, I don't, I don't like living down here where I don't believe in what you're saying to be true. Well, then start acting as if it is true and see the change. Let's wrap up. Verse 27, our last, uh, our last passage. But Barnabas took him in. The other disciples wouldn't. Barnabas took him in and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. Catch this last part. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. The church increased in its numbers. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out because we're actually going to end in a song, but as they do, don't focus on them coming back and resetting because let me give you the key points, the two key points for us today as we wrap up. The first one is this last, the last few verses, verse 31 I just read to you, and it was this. And the church enjoyed this incredible time of peace and being encouraged by the Holy Spirit in living in the fear of God, the church grew. There are those who are believers that I'll speak to first as far as application. And my question for you would be this. If you're a follower of Jesus, what are you doing 
to increase the body of Christ. Do you catch what it says here? It says that they enjoyed this incredible freedom and they used this freedom to be telling the story and bringing people, more people to Jesus. Do you realize that we live in the most free country in the world where we are given absolute religious freedom to go and tell the story and live it out for Jesus? And yet it would seem we keep squandering the freedom. We'd rather debate politics. We'd rather complain about the president or the Democrats being in power or the Republicans in power. Seems like we'd rather focus on that. And I would just say to you believers, we are living in an incredible time of absolute openness to be bringing people and telling the story of Jesus. What are you doing? Last week, we had a baptismal service. I said this in the second service. I did not think to say it in the first because someone didn't ask me, I should say. But someone asked me after the services, why, why aren't you, Pastor Scott, baptizing all the people? Why are all these different peop people baptizing different people? Remember why, right? Because one of the things we've tried to practice for years is that the person that's been influential in bringing someone to Jesus, we want them to be a part of that baptism. You know what that means, friends? That means we're, giving, we're waiting for every one of us who are followers of Jesus to have your moment to baptize somebody because we've been a part of that. So the first application is we live in this incredible time of peace and freedom. Don't squander it. The second application for today is for the person who's not yet a follower of Jesus. And I would say this, that maybe your questions that you've wrapped up saying, I, you know, I, can't believe it. I can't believe this, I can't believe that. Maybe they're not smoke screens, but they sure are nice distractions. And I would challenge you to lay those aside for just a moment and have the integrity to do this. First, say, okay, God, no one else has ever claimed that they would die and come back from the dead. You did that. And witnesses said they have seen that. So have the integrity to say, so what am I going to do with that? I'm okay if you just say, no, I won't believe it. But at least have the integrity to not try to explain it away by some other smokescreen. That's the first one. Second thing, would you say this, Lord, if you are real, then who are you? Lord, if you are a God to be known, I would rather know you than have all of my, my questions answered. And if you're willing, all willing to honestly ask those questions, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're willing to honestly ask those questions, ask them, honestly answer them, and then let the Holy Spirit do his work. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're having a dialogue with someone, just ask the question, hey, let's talk about what happened and who do you think Jesus is? And then let the Holy Spirit do his work. Team, wrap us up. I invite you to stand with us as we worship this morning. Father, thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. worship you. We praise your name.
that will ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope. In your presence, Lord. I have tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is
By our heads, if you would, Father, we're so thankful that we sense and we know that your presence is here. I pray, Lord Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit for the person perhaps watching or listening that's not a follower, that you'd put all the other stuff aside and they would see that there is a God who knows them and a God who wants them to know him. They want, you want them to know you and begin this incredible personal relationship. Lord Jesus, move in their hearts. For every one of us who are followers of Jesus, we get so wrapped up in so many of the things of life. Would you make us just stop and fall in love with you again personally and remember that you know us and you love us. Dismiss us today in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.